you to turn your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. By now, your Bibles should almost be turning there by themselves as we continue in this study. Begin reading in, excuse me, Luke chapter 14, begin verse 15. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. God's Word says, Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began making excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now great multitudes went with them, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks, conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, this morning we are taking a theme that Christ kind of introduced last week in his uh, discussion about who you invite to your events and to your feasts. And we talked um, through a section of scripture about the necessity to to model, first of all, to have humility and then to model humility in our ministries one to another. Uh, and that we do that by seeking out ministry, seeking out to bless people with no expectation of uh, applause, no expectation of repayment, no expectation of, of uh, any glory for ourselves uh, with an expectation of joy at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
um, of the just. That we look towards that as our reward. And if we receive a reward here on earth, then it is completed. And uh, unfortunately for me in the church, I feel that we predicate our ministry based upon earthly rewards, which puts us in the same sphere as the Pharisees that Jesus condemns here. So we completed chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, but Christ isn't done. He's he's, going to carry this same motif into the next portion of Scripture. And as we've seen other places in Luke, we find him interrupted. And this uh, interruption comes from someone who believes that they are adding to his message or benefiting or giving a proper response to a statement, which is interesting when you think about what his statement just was. He just got done basically telling them to humble themselves so they can be exalted. And when I think of humility, the last thing I think about is lifting up your voice over the crowd at the table and making a declaration such as this one makes in verse 15 of Luke 14. Uh, And so the evidence is is that they weren't getting it. And so Christ is going to keep carrying this and and press it even further uh, because here's one who is willing to exalt uh, himself rather than humbling himself and wants to make this declaration, and he is going to um, give a very different view of what the kingdom of heaven is like than what the Jews anticipated. And maybe today we need to look at this similarly as understanding what the kingdom of heaven is like compared to what we have made it like, what we think it is. And rather today we want to examine what God describes it as. And before we do so, we want to go, Lord, in prayer and commit this time to Him. Our grace, God, we do thank You for Your Word before us, Your Spirit within us, Your people around us. We thank You for the opportunity we have to investigate Your Scriptures. But we do so warily because we know that it is often man's intent to seek your truth, but then to insert our own and to mix it with what our beliefs, our culture says it should say. Lord, we want to uh, hear your word this morning. And we've read it, and so we have it before us. We pray now your spirit might direct that our thoughts might be focused upon it by His unction that we might hear Your Word and not uh, that of men. Lord, make us careful today. Just strip away all that we've been raised with that is not of You. All that we have grown accustomed to and familiar with that is not how You would have us be. And we might come to you with a true desire to know you and a true willingness to obey you. 
Again, Lord, our dependence today is on your Spirit. Both in the declaration of your Word as well as in the reception of your Word. We pray your Spirit might envelop this time. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen. Well, having told this account of how we should engage ourselves when we go to a feast, when we go to a banquet, and how we should conduct ourselves if we are the host of a banquet. Uh, Christ is now going to stretch this uh, event. And, and, and it's not a difficult one. We're sitting at a feast. This is all going on at a feast table. And so he is just taking uh, something that is right readily at hand and using it as imagery to communicate important truth. And it's evident that he's dealing with people who are resistant to that from the onset. And we want to recognize that. Um, It's not that they are intellectually stupid. It is not really that they're even ignorant. And there is a difference between those. Hopefully you know that. Um, Stupidity is an inability to learn. Uh, Ignorance is just a, a lack of knowledge. These people knew God's word. We're talking about a ruler of the Pharisee's house. We're talking about those that he would invite to such a feast. And so we have around him um, some of those that would be considered more intellectual, certainly those that are more informed of God's word. Uh, We also have around him uh, those that are uh, wealthy and and are well-established in the community. They are leadership of their community. And so... uh, It is not out of uh, lack of education. It is not out of any of those that they aren't getting it. It is simply that they are resisting him from the very onset of this occasion. They have set their will against him. And it has prevented them from allowing what he is saying to penetrate their hearts, let alone their minds. So we come to verse 15. And one of those who sat at the table with him, um, having heard Christ saying these things, including the two particularly, that whoever exalts himself will be humbled, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, uh, making the statement that um, blessed, you'll be blessed because if you uh, invite those to your feast that cannot repay you because you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just to insert, having heard those two things particularly, this statement, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And in and of itself, standing alone, the statement is one that we would readily say amen to. Truly, blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Who who have that as their future. Uh, the difficulty isn't with the content of the statement, but the context of the statement. For Christ has just um, spoken against the very activity of arrogance that's going on in that room. They were arrogant coming in, in, in uh, saying, oh, we know what can and can't be done on the Sabbath, and we're willing to let this individual suffer this day in order to keep this representation of the law, and yet violate its very spirit. And instead of being humbled by the law, we are exalting ourselves through the 
quote-unquote keeping of the law. We find it exemplified again in the seeding behavior where they are seeking their own interests and uh, not humbling themselves and allowing the host to uh, lift them up or others to lift them up and to esteem them, but they sought their own places, the best places. And then, of course, uh, the very clear accusation of Christ that the table is filled with friends and relatives and, and peers of the host who were, were going to readily repay him. And so in this context, the statement um, falls flat. Why? Because the people at that table all thought they were in the condition of this blessed state. When he makes the declaration, blessed uh, is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God, everyone was willing to say amen. And that was the problem. Because none of them were really in line to eat bread in the kingdom of God. But they thought they were. Because they were the keepers of the law. And they had exalted themselves into believing that they were the ones who were representative of the kingdom of heaven. And so Christ says is his typical response um, could very easily blast this man out of the water with a direct statement, but would prefer to use the accounting in this parable. Which, from all evidence, everyone kind of figured out along the way um, enough so that they wanted to kill him again. So here we are. Remember, we are near Jerusalem. Just on the outskirts, we are preparing to enter into the Holy Week, as we call it, um, the week of Passover and, of course, of our Lord's death. Uh, we come, and here we are with the ruler of the Pharisees. One of the rulers of the Pharisees is seated at the table there. And Christ engaging this one's proclamation that is essence true, but in the context is flat, purposeless. It begins with the account. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now, it would have been easy for them to think, well, he's talking about us. But the fact is, is the one who gave the great supper and invited many is Jesus, is God himself. I just want to put that in the context. Right away, we have a disparity. Here's this one of the rulers of the Pharisees hearing the beginning of the story and thinking, oh, that's kind of like me just now. And he places himself in that role instead of allowing Christ to develop. You can almost see it happening there, but then eventually they get an understanding. The kingdom of God is what's the topic at hand. And so the man who gave a great supper invited many is God himself. You've talked about eating bread in the kingdom of God. Well, what about God's invitation? Let's talk about it. What about that great supper that is to be had in heaven? And so a servant is sent out, as certainly this man sent out servants to invite people to come. And, and when the 
there would have been a general invitation and then a specific invitation. The general invitation is, I'm going to have a supper at this certain date. And then the specific invitation is, when things are all prepared, you then would send a servant out to say, now's the time. And so very different than us, we would send out an invitation that says, um, you come on this date and you come at this time. It would not be appropriate their day to do that. They would set the date and then the actual time of the feast you're expected to wait upon the host and he would communicate that with you and you would bring yourself when the meal's prepared. And so there's a, a day that had been set, but a time that had not. So the time had come. Supper time was was there. And so the servant is sent out to those who had already been invited. They were already well aware that the event was taking place. They knew the day. They knew the event. They didn't know the hour. They didn't know the time. And so they had no reason not to be prepared. For he had given them sufficient information to understand that this is when and within a a general approximation, we all kind of know when supper is. It's going to be somewhere between five and eight, generally, if we use our modern practices. Some of you might eat later in that. Um, And the sermon goes out, and instead of finding people anticipating the invitation, anticipating the time when, when the celebration, when the feast is to begin, um, we find them instead prepared with one accord to make excuses. The statement has come for all things are now ready. I told you in advance that th- the day would come. The day has come, and now within that day, the preparations have been made, and everything is ready. We're on the very verge of it occurring. And suddenly, we have excuses. Suddenly, it's like, well, um, I, I, I know there's great preparations made. I know that I was invited a while back. But, you know, um, I, I got caught up in some other activity today. Look at it very carefully. First, I do them. I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. Ask you. I ask you to have me excused. I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. Um, I ask you to have me excused. I'm going to stop there because the last one's kind of interesting. Um, but the first two I want to talk about, I want you to note this. Um, they bought property. They bought a yoke of oxen. And they say, I'm going to test them today. Of all days to decide that this is the day to go look at your property, to go test your yoke of oxen, you pick the day of that event. And then throughout the course of this day, instead of taking care to prepare yourself throughout the day for this major event that that you know is coming, you know it's on the immediate horizon, you know it's there. Instead of preparing yourself for it, you are engaging yourself in business affairs uh, as if that's not happening. And so when the time comes, you're not ready. You're not prepared. You are caught up in the affairs of your life instead of prepared for the event of the century that this man has has made ready. You've known it's coming. You should have um, 
taking care of your business the day before. You should have spent the entirety of that day preparing yourself for that event that night. That was the expectation, is that everyone was so anticipating the event that they were, they were ready all day and looking forward to it. This is what the man expected. And setting out the servant was that everyone's just waiting to, for this final, it's ready, come. But instead he finds them acting as if they didn't even know there was anything going on that day, let alone that hour. They're still wrapped up in all the affairs of the world. And so they say, oh, please excuse me, I'm kind of busy. I'm kind of involved here. Um, and I'm not ready, and I don't, I'm not going to rush to get ready. I'm not going to throw these things off at the last minute. i I, I got to finish these things. These are jobs I have to finish. We've started them today, and we need to finish them today. We have this fundamental excuse. I'm not interested in eating bread in the kingdom of God because I'm so engaged in the affairs of business of this world. I'm so caught up in making sure I get my retirement fund cared for. I'm so caught up in making sure I get the bills paid. I'm so caught up in making sure that I have my investments lined up. I'm so caught up in making sure that my equipment is working properly. I'm so caught up in all this stuff that I haven't taken any time of any day to prepare myself for the biggest event in the history of the world. And it comes, and God says, come. And we're like, ah, ah, ah. And we're torn? Torn between, well, I'm not sure. I, I Can you just hold that off? Um, I, there's a seven-year gap here, right? I have a second chance in, so I can finish up my affairs. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. And by the way, that is what's being taught. When Christ says, come, we can say, Okay, thanks for the warning. Um, I'll get back with you in seven years. Now I know that you're really coming. We're going to find that that's not the case at the end of the story. They had an excuse. I'm tied up in the affairs of this world. I can't. I don't want to give my attention to this stuff. To this. Um, you know, I know you've done a lot of work, and it's important to you, but. You have to recognize what's important to me. And what's important to me is my business affairs. What's important to me is my future. Isn't that interesting? I have to make sure this equipment I bought works well. You know, he wasn't plowing that day. He wasn't planting that day. He wasn't harvesting that day. He was worried about his future. He wasn't building anything on that property that day. It was an investment. His his passion... Both of these two, their passion was for their future. I bought this ground. I have to go look at it. He's not doing anything on it. He just wants to look over his investment. Same thing with the oxen. I just want to go see if uh, how they're going to work. I'm going to test them. I'm just going to make sure that I I made a a smart choice in my investments. They're so tied into that that they've totally lost any perspective on what the future really is. 
And I sit people down and I say, well, uh, what do you foresee for your future? And I like doing that with young people, you know, um, in various stages of life. What do you see for your future? What, what are your plans for your future? Um, and the first thing that comes to mind for them is, well, you know, I, I want to get a good education so I get a good paying job. So I can, uh, Why? Well, that's what you're supposed to do. Who said? Everybody. Everybody? I've said that? Well, and then I'm looking for someone to marry. And that I got that in the future. And, and we'll probably have kids sometime once we're financially independent and we um, have fulfilled all of our bucket list. And then, you know, we'll have time for kids. It's fascinating. And you ask, you ask people, what, what do you got? What's your plans for the future? And, and some people who aren't quite as ambitious, their future might be, well, I plan to make supper and eat it tonight. Um, I want to tell you how rarely I ever hear anyone say, my plan is heaven. That's my future. What I do between that today and that future is going to keep that future in clear focus. And it changes. It changes everything radically in your life when you do that. We're afraid of that radicality. And so we keep our focus on the earthly future and we kind of put this heaven future thing kind of on, it's not even on a back burner. It's like on a warming thing somewhere else, another room. I mean, it's not even there. In our day-to-day decision-making, the fact is our true future seldom comes to the forefront of our thinking. We try to make it happen our, when we witness to people, you know, what's going to happen when you die? We try to leave off with that kind of question. What's going to happen to you when you die? What are we trying to do? We're trying to get them to think beyond the future of next tomorrow, of next week, of your retirement, and get to the ultimate future. What does your ultimate future look like? Your ultimate future needs to be cared for. And most people aren't even thinking about their ultimate future. They don't want to think about it. They'd rather get wrapped up in the things of this world. See how uncomfortable it makes people to talk about their ultimate future um, compared to them talking about where they're going to go to college, what they're going to do, what their retirement plans are. Oh, talk to people in their mid-50s about retirement. Oh, they've got all kinds of plans. Late 40s, we got plans, you know, Kids are going to be gone. And we're going to do stuff. We're going to travel. We're going to see this. Oh, we always love making these plans, don't we? As if this is all there is. And we've forgotten that there's a big event this day. We don't know the hour, but it's this day. It's this lifetime. Well, there's one other one, and I avoided it here. Let's go to it, the third excuse. They all set them together. And so they're all in the same category. Okay, we want want to pull this one aside and separate it, but it's all the same. So still notice that I have married a wife and doesn't even ask to be excused. 
His statement is, I can't come. I love that. Christ has a sense of humor, I think, to a degree. You know, I'm married to wife, I can't come. What are you thinking? We're on our honeymoon. Why would you schedule that to interrupt my life like that? I remember as a young person thinking, oh, I hope the Lord doesn't come until after I get married because I really want to get married. Um, and what foolishness to want the Lord not to come for anything. There's nothing on this earth worth it. Nothing. And so we put this in the same category as this other stuff. You know, I've got my sights set on this earth. And Folks, I know, I've been to the weddings and I hear the songs and I hear, um, uh, we're, this is forever. It's not forever. Okay? Your wedding, your marriage is not forever. It should be longer than most of them go, but they're not any of them forever. And, and we hear the music and it sounds really good, you know. I'm gonna be yours forever. And it's like, eh. Till death do you part. And that's pretty temporary. That's as far as it goes. That's as long as it goes. Till death do you part, and it's over. Um, that relationship cannot stand between you and your real future. Not your investments, not your work, not your marriage. None of that can stand between your, you and your true future. For the believer, none of those things measure up to our true future. I do not compromise on any of those levels so that I'm unprepared for the time of Christ's coming um, based upon anything, any relationship on this earth or any things on this earth. Oh, what a tragedy to be in this condition. And yet Israel was in that condition. The sun had come. He was there in the room. And they didn't want any part of him. They were too caught up in their activity. They're too caught up in their, in their look at me to bother to notice God was sitting there with them. They are too interested in the affairs of this world and too concerned about, um, oh, he's got more people following him than we have following us. They like him more than they like me. He's God. You start raising people from the dead and healing them and maybe those people start following you around a little bit. But even then, they were unprepared because their minds were on earthly things. Therefore, they weren't ready for the invitation. The invitation come. All things are now ready. God's made everything ready but we're not ready to receive the invitation. Our minds are set on earthly things and we invest ourselves in it uh, extensively. Oh, that we would put as much effort and energy after our spiritual development as we do just in our entertainment, let alone our work and family. Just equal time would be phenomenal be overwhelming. We don't do even that. And yet we claim that that's our future, just like this man. 
Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. We'll step back every now and then and make that declaration, but it shows no evidence in our life. We have excuse after excuse after excuse of all worldly orientation of why we can't engage. So, what happens? It gets reported back to the master. And guess what? This God, so loving, this this host, so careful and so generous and so bountiful in his preparations, so expansive in what he had, had invited them to, so careful in his preparation and now in the invitation, is snubbed by his inferiors. And without surprise, we find him angry, as well as should be. And it's something we don't often confront the world with, and that is that you reject God, you're inciting his anger. It's bad enough that he's already, you're already a sinner. Now, you're inciting him to even further rage by snubbing your nose at his grace and mercy and provision and care. We get to these descriptions of God's anger with Israel in the, in the Old Testament prophets. And we get to it, the description of his anger in Revelation and, and in other portions of Scripture. And we're like, boy, why is God so mad? Because he has provided so great a salvation and we have flatly rejected it. And why shouldn't he be mad? Should be our question. We have the anger the angryness comes out by saying, I want to fill this house. I'm going to fill this house. To the point there's no room for those who rejected it. I want you to notice. There's not much time because everything's ready. So we're on the very end of the, even the possibility of participating in this great meal. So they go, go out and they gather up the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. There's still room. He says, go out and get the criminals. Beat the hedges and get them out there. I don't care what their history is. Um, I don't care who their mama is. I don't care what kind of job they hold. I don't care. I, I, want, in, I want my house full. I've made these preparations. I have enough. And so let's fill the house up. And, and that is clearly the intended purpose. Is I want this house full. And then there will be no place for anyone else. There will be no room. There will be no seat left. It says, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my supper. Obviously, the primary applications to Israel, that Israel rejecting Christ, um, and that this crowd of lame, blind, poor, um, and out in the highways and by hedges, uh, all referring to the Gentile community, um, that application is very clear. And, and so we apply that and we say, well, praise God that 
He wanted us at His banquet table and allowed us who had no invitation to begin with. Ours is a last second invitation. The invitation to Israel was over thousands of years. And we might sit here and say, well, we've had 2,000 years. Very short time. And God keeps saying that this invitation is short. It's brief. It's at the last second. These are the last days. He's been saying that. Uh, and, and, and the longer he's been saying that, should tell you that he's about ready to close the door. And saying, the place is filled. I'm done. No one else coming to this table. There is no room for there, for those that have rejected it. There's no room for those that are caught up in the things of this world and want to receive their reward there. I have no room for them. There's no seat left for any late arrivers. But we still have it, just as Israel had that attitude among the Pharisees in that day, we're seeing that attitude in our day, that somehow um, there will be a second round of salvation uh, on a par that puts to shame the church age, apparently. Uh, I hear descriptions of, of tens of millions getting saved without anyone witnessing to them, without the Holy Spirit, with, with, with God's anger being poured out all around them. And I find it nowhere in God's Word. We studied in Zephaniah last Sunday night, and if you missed that, you missed a... There's very few times that I can't sleep because of a sermon I've already preached. And last Sunday night was one of those weeks that my wife was like, what is wrong with you? I said, that was a great sermon. Um, Not because I preached it, but because the content was so powerful. And I had to write it on my Facebook and everything, you know. It was just too much sometimes. Um... The idea that, well, I'll just put it off. And when Christ comes, and then we'll all know we can set our clock and we'll have seven years and then I'll know and then I'll take care of it then. Wrong. Wrong. Zephaniah says, you better take care of this before the decree. You better take care of this before he starts. Because as soon as he starts, it's too late. Do it now before it happens. Because if you wait till it happens, there will be no salvation. The day of salvation is before the decree. You cannot avoid being shut out if you wait till He comes. And so we are coming down to this last second and we have this last second. We're going to go out to the poor, maimed, lame, blind and we're going to bring them in. Well, it's still not full. Well, there's still room. Okay, there's still room. Um, go out the highways and byways and, and we're coming up to this last second and there's going to be no late arrivals. None. There's going to be no room for any late people. I don't want any of those who have rejected me during this season that they had opportunity to think that they have opportunity now. Once they've made me angry, all hope is lost. Once God's wrath starts, there is no hope of deliverance. There is no seat at the table for you. And there will never be a seat at the table for you. And this Israel wasn't understanding. Christ is saying, if you reject me, there is nothing else but God's anger and wrath. 
You can sit here and make claim to that table. You can say, blessed is the man who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't apply to you because you've rejected the one who has invited you. Because you're all tied up in the things of this world. And what do we find in the Christian community? We don't find a fervency for the gospel. We don't find a fervency for righteousness. We don't find ourselves anxious to be make sure that we are prepared day by day, moment by moment, for that statement, come, all things are now ready. Are you waiting for that? I, I know you guys hear me say this, and, and I don't mean it flippantly. I don't mean it lightly. I mean it earnestly. What is your plan A? My plan A, whenever you ask me, what, what's your plan here, Pastor? My plan A is the Lord comes back, we we'll don't have to do this. And I get chuckles, which is, you know, we're doing, a, you know, plan A for Haiti. Plan A for Haiti is the Lord comes back and I don't have to go. That's my preferred plan. It really is. Plan A for this message all week was, Lord, come back, I won't have to preach it. That was plan A. And I always have plan B because I'm not sure when Christ is going to come or send His servants and say, come for all things are now ready. But I'm looking forward to it. Are you? Is it an active part of your daily grind? Is it part of your retirement package? you have that factored in somewhere there? In your investment portfolio, do you have the kingdom of heaven somewhere tucked around there? Talk to your broker about that. They won't want to hear it. You see, because if heaven was our real future, we'd be investing there and not here. And yes, you can't invest in heaven. The Bible says so. What have you invested in heaven? The Philippians invested in heaven. Paul invested in heaven. Peter invested in heaven. That was their account. And they know that they're building up that account where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Are you investing in that? Are you investing in that as seriously and as, and as religiously, there's a word, as you're investing in your earthly retirement? Hmm. You see, we are not much different than Israel. We can sit there and beat them over the head and say, oh, they were sitting with Jesus Christ and they rejected Him, rebelled against were arrogant and made every excuse to miss Him. But we are just as guilty in our day. The fact is, so when Christ comes in His anger, there will be no seats at his table left. But the fact that he hasn't closed the door yet means that there's still at least one seat left for you. And the question is, how are you going to respond to the invitation? The time is almost up. You might say, this is the first time I've ever heard about it. Well, you know what? Then count yourself among the poor, maimed, lame, blind, and out in the highways and byways of life and be compelled that God wants you, if you're willing, to be in His table.
But if you reject that, and He comes, realize there will be no more seats. This is the day of salvation. This is the age of grace. This is the season. This is the day of the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of heaven. We have that invitation. The invitation is furthered by Christ with the added description of what's involved. He has apparently left the place. Multitudes went with him as he left. And he has this to share with them. The affairs of this world cannot stand if you're going to be my disciple. There's no relationship on earth. None that can stand between you and following Christ. Zero. He already put that forward with the marriage, which in God's sight is the strongest relationship Believe it or not, it, I know that your children are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, but that actually was a statement made of your wife. In Christ's sight, in God's sight, you're not one with your children. You're one with your wife. And he picks on this married couple, this married man, who says, I can't come because I'm married. And even that relationship, there is no relationship on earth that should stand between you and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And should that any relationship stand there, then the statement stands, verse 26, you cannot be his disciple. How dare you state claim to be his disciple when these other relationships matter more to you than Christ? That this things on this earth matter more to you than the things of heaven. That anything matters more of this temporality compared to that eternality. And he summarizes in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my... He has a list of cannot be's. You can't be his disciple if relationships stand between you and obedience. You can't be his disciple if you're unwilling to endure any suffering for him. You cannot be his disciple if you don't count the cost. Verse 33 culminates this. It says, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. To have that place in that feast of God requires us to walk away from the yoke of oxen. Even if it means the yoke of oxen are going to wander off. It means to walk away from that piece of property. It means to interrupt your honeymoon. And to say, not even that is of, is of concern compared to the following after Christ. We've already had examples of that. We had guys that walked away from their entire career for Christ. Do you remember the little message about the boat? Remember it? Of where are you in your maturity and your walk with God? You know, are you willing to have God borrow your boat? Are you willing to God direct your boat? Are you willing to give Him your boat? Do you remember that account there back early? Was that like years ago now, Luke? Um, you know, I, 
and most of us, it's still my boat, and I'll let God in it. I'll let God borrow it. I'll even let God steer it a little bit. But he wants me to give it to him. Now it's his boat, and then he wants me to walk away. Maybe. Are you ready? God says you can't be his disciple if you're not willing to forsake all and follow him with that kind of commitment. See, anything less is just pharisaism. The only one fooled is you. For God is not fooled. So he tells us to count the cost. To look into the future is again required of us. Verse 28-31, whether it's to build a tower or whether it's to uh, engage in a war, uh, he says, you have to look to the future. Do you have what it takes to finish? Do you have what it takes to win? Do you have what it takes to get to the objective? And the objective in this whole account is the kingdom of God. Do you have what it takes to get there from here? Do you have it? Do you have what it takes to get there? To the kingdom of, to have this statement, blessed is the one who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Do you have what it takes to get there? Think about your future and invest in it. And prepare for it. These are all about being prepared for the future. That before I start laying down the foundation, I know I have the resources to finish the job. That before I go out and engage in a skirmish, I know I have the military force to overcome the entire army I'm confronted with. I'm not going to send out a little raiding party against this and, and start and pick a fight with somebody that outnumbers me and, I, and outguns me, and I can't finish the fight. Don't pick a fight you can't finish. Look to the future and say, "Am I ready for it?" And the whole core of this whole portion of Christ's teaching is look beyond the things of this world to your true future, the resurrection of the just, which he talked about in verse 14 at the end of last week in our study. Um, he talked about the resurrection of the just. Are you looking to that future? What's going to be like? And frankly, when I look to that future, I'm kind of concerned about me. If I'm going to stand before him ashamed because I haven't done enough. Because I have involved myself and engaged myself too much in this world and not enough in that world to come. Or are we just dull and just saying, oh, I'm just going to be blessed because we're going to partake of the kingdom. We look to the future, we understand that we need to be ready. To be ready means that we have that which it takes to finish the course. Do you have the resource to finish? What is the resource we're talking about? We have often stated here that salvific faith is faith that lasts. It endures. It will endure hardship. It will endure and it will not set its sights on things of this world, but on things to come. This is the kind of faith God calls us to. And yes, it is possible to have faith in God that is not salvific. I am convinced of it. These people he was eating with, 
these people following him around had a faith in God, but they weren't saved. They were outside of the kingdom. They were being invited in by Jesus himself. They had faith in God. To some degree, they believed that he existed and they had knowledge of his word, they had knowledge of the law, but fundamentally, even that, they still had it mix this mixture of their of their self pride and their and their trusting in themselves as well as God, just like old Israel trusted in God and the idols um, and, and the false gods. Um, this is not salvific faith. This is the faith kind of faith that condemns you before God. For this is a kind of faith that keeps us from finishing the course. This weak, wishy washy faith that was evident in the people sitting with Christ, evident in the multitudes. And Christ says, that kind of faith you can't be my disciple with. Only with enduring faith. A faith that says, no matter the price, I will follow you. No matter where you go, no matter what befalls us on that road, I will follow you. No matter who I have to hate, I will follow you. I may have to turn my back on my very nearest family to follow you. And I have to say, if that is something you're not willing to do, These are Christ's words, not mine. You cannot be his disciple. You cannot be. Your your faith, faith is false. It's placed falsely, and the only one that's fooled is yourself. The invitation stands today. But count the price. If you're too worried... about relationships and what's going to happen this week. What's mom going to say? What's dad going to say? What's my husband going to say? What's my wife going to say? What's my uncle going to say? What's my daughter going to say? What's, what are they, how am I, then you don't have salvific faith. It's just not there. But when we count the cost and we say, I'll follow him, doesn't mean we're always gonna, we're not gonna trip and fall every now and then, but we're gonna stand up and say, oh, dumb, stupid, sin, forgive me, I'm still trusting you. Then, then and only then does the statement, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God apply to us. And we have that kind of enduring faith that says, I'll follow him no matter what. And I'll sacrifice anything of this earth to gain entry into that place. Are you willing to sacrifice a piece of ground? A piece of property? Or is that what your dream is? Are you willing to sacrifice a few yoke of oxen? Or is that what your dream is? 
sacrifice a relation, an intimate relationship, or is that where your trust and dream is, fulfillment is? See, if any of those things stand between you and Christ, then you haven't considered your real future. You've only considered the near future. The calling of Christ here is to call us beyond this world into the one that endures. And to do so requires us to endure, have enduring faith. And the measure of that enduring faith is that we count the cost, take up our cross, and follow Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. And Lord, we have fear and trembling when we come to a passage again that confronts us with the difference between real salvific faith and that which only is deceptive and empty. Lord, we see in how Israel treated you the great error of being of giving you lip service and our heart service. We see that they were shut out. That generation after generation were lost. And Lord, we know that your coming is drawing very near. We are on the precipice of the door closing, of the seats being filled. Lord, give us that urgency to go quickly with the gospel and to respond quickly to it. You might give us a faith in our real future. Endure that which is required of us to demonstrate that faith. We praise things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.